There are hundreds of ghost towns and forgotten settlements in South Dakota. Some of these abandoned structures still stand as silent monuments to the ambitions of men long dead. A few are now grassy fields, with perhaps only a graveyard to mark the name of a community long dead and buried with its deceased residents. Each of these places thronged with the noises of life and generated thousands of stories, the byproduct of the dramas of life on the frontier. Those stories are for another time. For it is October, and the grass is browning, the crops are drying, and the earth is slowly dying. A ghost story is in order. But which ghost story? South Dakota has so many. In this episode, four documented stories of strangeness and tragedy. The gruesome death of a mysterious foreign woman and subsequent haunting make her the first ghost report ever recorded in Deadwood. The Sisseton tell a tale of a valley where the earth bleeds and cries. A lady card shark plays her final hand, but she doesn't seem to know it yet. And a man on the frontier kills his treacherous business partner five years after his own death. The Sioux Empire. We live here, but what do we really know about this land we call home? Many of us were born here writing our story. Many are new here, with new parts of the story to tell. And some of us were always here, but their stories, while not always told, have never been forgotten. This is the Sioux Empire Podcast. Stories about the Sioux Empire you've never heard in the Sioux Empire. Before we get started, a little business this month. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends about this podcast. If you really like us, please consider supporting us on Patreon and getting access to sweet behind-the-scenes show notes, photos, and more. I also want to give a big shout-out to Peter Pischke and his podcast, The Happy Warrior Podcast. If you like a political podcast, you should check out his show. It's The Happy Warrior Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Also, a great big shout-out to the Dave Holly Hour Podcast. I had a great time being interviewed by Dave about this podcast, and if you're interested in what's going on in my world personally, or how this podcast has evolved from its previous incarnation into the version that uh, you're enjoying now, you should check it out. If you like this show, you'll like Dave Holly's show. He covers the art and theater scene as well as the local comedy and local business scene. There's a lot of great interviews. It's definitely a lot like the old Sioux Empire podcast. If you like that format, You'll love the Dave Holly Hour, because it's just like that, but with more polish. Dave's years of experience in radio really shine through in his show, and it's a great program. Give it a listen. I'd also like to offer a special thank you before we start to Siouxland Libraries of Sioux Falls, and a special thank you to Betty Jean Mertens from the Kennebec Public Library, and pioneer historian Lana Swent of Vivian. He did a lot of groundwork for this episode out there in Kennebec, and I'm super grateful for it. Just an outstanding human being, uh, and thank you so much for your help out there, Lanis. So this month in honor of Halloween, I present you with four stories to explore the dark and unexplained sides of South Dakota. I tried to pick some tales that weren't as commonly told, and in fact I'm pretty sure that our last tale was lost to history, even to local historians until now. For our first tale, let's go back to before European settlement. 
Let's tell the tale of a land where the flesh of the ancestors bleeds up from the ground. Strange lights and rumors of disappearances haunt this place, literally known to the Sisseton as Sicha, literally evil. Sichahalo by Wambli Wichasha. There is a place that today is called Sichahalo. It is deep and dark, and long memories live there. Few people, except the Sisseton, know its entrance, and these people keep its story a secret. Once it was a shelter for many camps. Quiet smokes rose up to the prairie. North wind tried every opening into the hollow but the great trees held back his white breath. Deer and antelope slipped into the folds of the hollow. They found open water and salt when all the earth above was hard with ice. Great teepees lay under buffalo robes and the old men sat every day in their meeting houses. Their bones were warm and their pipes prayed to Ate who had blessed them. But a stranger came from the west into the hollow. His bow was broken and his moccasins were worn. He had no family. He made a sign to say his name was Hand. He was not fall, and his eyes were thin. The young girls looked at him, and something told them to be afraid. He ate much and did not show thanks. He laughed under his breath at the old men, and no one saw him pray. He did not smile like good men do, nor did he tell stories. The old women said he should be sent away, but it was cold outside the hollow and thick ice covered the big stone lake. The old men said he would go when it was warm. After several moons, the great light in the sky, the sun, began to move back to the north. Earth began to open and let out her young. Young braves quit their winter games and crept out of the hollow to search for fresh meat and for the eggs of water birds that flew at night from the south. Hand was older and slyer, and he showed the young boys many tricks. He hid like a lynx in the grass. His eye drew the game to him. He was proud and laughed at the mistakes of the young men. Around the prairie campfire, when the old men could not hear, he said, Why do you follow the old ways? What little glory do you have? In the dark of night, I can bring you to big kills that will make you warriors, feared by everyone. You will be great chiefs and wear scalps at your belts, not the tails of rabbits. Will you listen to me and keep my secrets away from the council fires? It was spring, and the young braves' hearts were beating for the beautiful maidens hidden in their mother's teepees. A great kill would prove manhood, and the maidens would surrender to marriage. Listen, then, to me and prepare your war clubs. Soon the valley trail will be dusty with camps moving north to the lakes of rice. If you follow me, you will strike many coops, and you will have many eagle feathers in your hair. You will be men, not old skeletons who sit and dream in the lodges. This talk stirred the blood of the youths, and they made their war clubs and waited. Every dawn, they watched the valley in order to make their first kill. And it was easy. The people of the hollow had always been good. The camps who passed them sent signals of friendship and slept safe on the open earth. Now, no more. Hand had taught the boys to strike. Travelers woke to wail over their dead. They ran for their lives into the tall grass, holding their hands over the mouths of the little ones. Blood ran everywhere. It fell into the river, and even today, this river is called Red. The horror spread into the hollow. 
Children ran for fear when they saw the dripping scalps. Women and girls spat on the tracks where the boys walked. The old man called for a council and for the medicine man. How can we make up for what our sons have done? How can we wash our hollow from this crime? What will be our sacrifice? We want our hollow to be as it was long ago. We Chashawakan listened to the old man. He went to his own lodge to listen to Wakan Tanka. He sat with his whistle and rattle and burning sweet grass. He did not sleep, but his eyes were closed. He waited for Thunderbird to bring him a message. And Hand did not sleep. He and his killers lit a big fire in the middle of the camp. They leaped and killed again and again. They bragged and shouted to the girls, lift up the teepee walls and follow us into the grass. Your children will have our blood in them and everyone will tremble when they call out. But the camp listened only to the holy men and prayed with him. An evil had come into their peace and only Thunderer could cleanse it from them. A wind stirred. The whistle and rattle in the lodge stilled. Ate, father, has heard his people. He has accepted their sacrifice. His messenger was coming. Through the smoke holes, women saw the dark wings of Thunderer. A flash and then another came from his eyes. Sudden fear touched the shoulders of hand. He crouched and shook like a water reed. Madness took him, but he could not escape. He ran and ran, but the wings of Thunderer beat him back into the flood that rained from the cloud. Vines reached out for him and took him by his ankles. The water rose to his screaming mouth and to his gaping eyes. He was too evil to cry for mercy, and the talons of Thunderer ripped out his sight so he would never see the happy hunting grounds. Wakantakan did not take all the sacrifice offered to him by his people in the hollow. Most sat in their teepees and went to God with a prayer, but one was saved. By her father, she was called Fawn. When the Wichasha Wakan had began his prayer, Fawn slipped into the door of her mother's teepee. Her hair was black as a raven and long. With a bone, she began to comb it and oil it. She set it into two braids and tied the ends with a bit of ermine. From her bundle, she drew her tassel dress and high white moccasins. Her medicine was calling her to flee the rising water. Up and up the steep slope she flew. The water rose higher behind her. All the world was covered. On the top of the highest hill, she stood bright and smooth-skinned in the sunlight. She was alone the only one of her tribe not touched by man or by the evil that hand had brought to her people. She began her song, and the great spirit behind the sun listened. I am grieved for the evil that my brothers did. Your beautiful land is destroyed. I stand alone with you. Let me sing my song before I join my sisters. You were good to us before evil entered our peace. Now I grieve. I ask your kindness and make this ground where I stand holy again, remembering this little spot and send your love here. From this ground make a new people and they will worship you always. Now I go to you. Her song and her grief made Fawn drop to the ground and she slept. The eye of Wakatanka saw her and he sent a white cloud to cover her. She slept many days, and the cloud covered her. She could not feel it, but from the cloud new life stirred in her. She felt no pain either, but emotion awakened her, and it was a child hungry for her milk. A tall brave looked down on her and touched her face. Below her the hollow was clean and bright again. Only the memory lingers, Seech a hollow. Someday, even this bad name will be changed and be forgotten. Gentle smokes will rise again, and it will be called by its old name, Makawashte, the good land.
Located in the northeast corner of South Dakota near Sisseton, Sika Hollow State Park is full of both eerie stories and autumn colors. A quick internet search and you'll find accounts of how the area is haunted and the scenes of the disappearance of several people in the 1970s. Further online investigation would bring up articles claiming things like a Bigfoot creature lives at the park, and that the streams are red with the blood and the flesh of ancestors. The main foot trail at uh, Sichihalo is the Trail of Spirits. At just over one mile in length, it's an easy walk for all ages. The trail follows the Roy Creek and some of the springs that flow into it, while showcasing many of the 200 plant species that grow there. Since it's in the low part of the hollow and under the canopy of trees, the trail is always shady and cool. Going off the trails presents a risk of bubbling bogs that can function similar to quicksand. This may be the source of some of the stories of people disappearing, but a surface-level investigation of missing persons records and newspaper databases didn't actually turn up any missing persons. Another explanation for the missing people reports from the park are the possibilities of the steep drop-offs and ravines. Sichi Hollow is unexpectedly hilly and a wooded area surrounded by the prairies and plains, a phenomenon caused by receding glaciers some 20,000 years ago. See our previous episode about the Wessington Hills to understand the uh, literal ups and downs of glacial moraines like the Wessington Hills or Sichi Hollow. In their book, The South Dakota Guide to Haunted Places, authors Chad Lewis and Terry Fisk describe the book says, Moans, groans, and screams heard from the forest are rationalized as the sounds of trapped gases escaping from the muddy bogs. The water at the park can also have a reddish tint. This is caused by iron deposits, not blood. Signage along the Trail of Spirit states, It is believed that during winter, air is trapped in the bog which borders the creek. As snow melts and the ground thaws, the gradually released air makes a sound comparable to that that's made when one blows air over the top of an uncapped bottle. Sicha is literally a term for evil or bad. There are a lot of Dakota narratives about the area, and before it was a state park, it was tribal land. Groups of families lived in Sicha Hollow for a long time, though these families who did live there have now either passed away or moved somewhere else. One of the first settlers to live in the hollow was a Frenchman named Robert Roy and he and his family members are buried in the park's Roy Cemetery, which is over a hundred years old. This cemetery, along with another called St. Benedict Cemetery, is near the multi-use trail system at the park. All of this combined with the red bogs, the deep ravines, and the thick woods is the stuff of scary folklore. But I guess if you're going to find out if any of these myths are really true, you'll have to go experience it for yourself. doll murder. Each August, the town of Deadwood in South Dakota's Black Hills holds the Days of 76 Parade, in which a beautiful young girl is chosen to ride on a float down Main Street as the year's China doll. While the former gold mining boomtown keeps the name alive, hardly anyone today knows about the original China doll or her fate. It's a gory story befitting Deadwood's violent past. Deadwood in 1877 was a place of hustle and bustle, its unpaved streets clogged with thousands of people. A mysterious Chinese woman named Dee Lee was among them. No one knows where she came from, but she no doubt attracted the attention of passers-by. Old-timers claimed this early Black Hills pioneer was the most beautiful woman in Deadwood. And sometime in the 20th century, they nicknamed her the China Doll or the Yellow Doll. Unfortunately, no documented photograph of this striking woman exists. She was reportedly single and wealthy, though as far as anyone knew, she was not a prostitute. Someone cut short her life in a horrific act of murder. Legend has it that she was hacked to pieces and later haunted the house as a ghost. Authorities never apprehended her murderer. Of the many Chinese who came to North America, especially during the various gold rushes, 
Few are remembered today, but the name China Doll lives on, even if one can only imagine her face. In her time, women of any nationality who did not sell their services to men were a rarity in Deadwood. Thus her story raises interesting questions. Why did she come to Deadwood? What were the circumstances of her murder? And of course the biggest question of any murder mystery, who done it? Unfortunately, no information has surfaced on the business that Dee Lee pursued. But she did own three lots of houses on Sherman Street, Deadwood's main street at the time. At the very least, she likely earned an income from those two rent other rental properties while living on the third. Given her holdings, Dee Lee almost certainly arrived in town already wealthy. But like virtually everyone else who ventured into this remote community, she was there to make more money. The murder of Wild Bill Hickok on August 2nd, 1876 is the crime that most people associate with Deadwood, and plenty of eyewitnesses saw Jack McCall pull the trigger. The murder of Dee Lee, the China Doll, ranks perhaps as the most notorious unsolved crime in a place that had very little law and order. Dee Lee, who appears in sources also as D.G. and D. He, was one of the first Chinese to come to Deadwood in 1876. How long she had been in North America beforehand is unknown. What is known is that she was young, attractive, unmarried, and able to afford those three well-furnished houses on Sherman Street. It seems clear that she was no servant, or for that matter was involved in the thriving opium trade in Deadwood. The mysterious woman did not live long enough to put down solid roots in the community, if that was her intention. She was murdered on November 27, 1877. In the most likely scenario, two people entered Dee Lee's home, perhaps with a third person standing guard outside. One intruder stabbed her with a small knife. The other smashed into the front of her skull with the blunt end of a hatchet. A bloody print on the face of the corpse suggested that one of the intruders had placed a left hand over Dee Lee's mouth to stifle her screams. Blood was splattered on the walls of her room, and the furnishings were in disorder. Was greed the motive? Authorities were uncertain that she had even been robbed. They had the China doll's body removed and taken to the rear of the shanty town in China. According to the Black Hills Daily Times, her face and clothing were clotted with blood, presenting a disgusting spectacle. Later accounts of the crime claimed that the victim was chopped to bits, but these were exaggerations. At an inquest the next morning, several people spoke up about what they might or might not have seen, but none of the information shed light on the murder. Deadwood's acting coroner, Dr. Charles W. Meyer, examined Dee Lee's corpse and found a small wound two inches below the sternum and about one inch in depth made with a blade similar to a pocket knife. This would not have been severe enough to cause death. There were two fractures to the front of the skull apparently caused by the blunt end of a hatchet. The coroner's jury decided that unknown assailants had murdered Dee Lee by blows to the head. On November 29th, the Chinese community held an elaborate funeral for the China doll. Typically, attendees at such funerals wore white or brightly colored clothing, and a band played cymbals and drums. People tossed firecrackers and pieces of paper, and mourners set aflame perfumed paper, incense, and colored candles placed around the body. Dealey's countrymen likely buried her in Ingleside, Deadwood's original cemetery, although her plot may have been in the newly opened Mount Moria Cemetery. A few years later, to make room for housing, officials disinterred all of the identifiable bodies in Ingleside, including that of Hitchcock, and moved them to Mount Moria. There is no record of Dee Lee's gravesite. Perhaps the Chinese community wanted her burial location kept a secret. The mystery of the China doll's life continued with her death, but apparently she did have at least one living relative in Deadwood. The November 30th Black Hills Daily Times stated that Hong Lee claimed kinship of Dee Lee, and that Dr. Meyer ordered her three lots with the houses on Sherman Street, along with a considerable amount of personal property, transferred to Hong Lee. This caused a bit of a stir in the non-Chinese community among those who thought that the probate judge, not the acting coroner, should have determined ownership. Meanwhile, the two big questions lingered. Who murdered Dee Lee? What was the motive? The Chinese would not cooperate with Deadwood authorities, and lawmen produced several suspects, but no one would testify against them. In its December 22, 1877 issue, the local newspaper reported a ghostly encounter at the murder scene.
from the Daily Press and Dakotan, January 4th, 1878. When the body of murder D. He was found, the gaping wound in the head where the hatchet had been deeply buried told the manner of her death. The blood-spattered walls, the confusion in the apartment, the attitude of the body, all bespoke a violent struggle. The mark of a bloody left hand across the mouth told that the clutch of the assassin had stifled her cries. The premises and the body after the inquest were turned over to her friends. In obedience to the superstition-prompted customs of these people, perfumed paper and various colored candles were burned about the corpse. All the unique ceremonies required by these customs were duly observed and the body buried. A well-behaved spirit should have ridden from the veil of tears on the incense created by the burning of their offerings, but not so with the indignant spirit of Madame D. He. The first night that the premises were occupied after the removal of the remains, a gentle tap tap is heard at the door. The voice of the dead is heard in reply. The door is opened, and a male voice without begs admission. The door creaks upon its hinges as it is wide open. The hurried step of two men is heard. A struggle fouls, and then again all is still. An examination shows the room in its usual order. The door is fastened as before. Of course, the haunted premises are promptly vacated and have so remained since. And now comes the occupants of the adjacent houses, who tell that in the dead hours of night, when honest men are supposed to sleep, and ghosts ride the gale on broomsticks, mop handles, etc., and to sit astride the chimneys of deserted old houses, the haunted houses of our childhood, there is heard in the vacant tenement, struggling, muttering curses, and the voice of the murdered woman explaining in pitiful pleading accents, Mu Shat Nyin, Mu Shat Nyin, Mu And the words died away in a gurgle, as the speaker were being strangled, and all when no person in the flash is about. And all this, to the average Chinese mind, is no mystery. The unnatural manner of Di He's death, the unnecessary interruption and this arrangement of their ceremonies, by reason of the presence of their officers, have disquieted the spirit of the dead woman, and it was where she returns to the scene of her former festivities. Chinatown is stirred to its very center over the ghostly presence, and vigorous steps are being taken to reconcile the grief ghost. Meanwhile, our real estate speculators are interested and predict the property in the neighborhood may soon be dirt cheap. Months after Dee Lee's murder, the newspapers reported a more down-to-earth development in the China Doll case. A young Chinese woman ran screaming into the Ixel Hotel, closely followed by an angry mob of Chinese men and women. The woman begged the proprietor to call the sheriff. A lawman, perhaps the Lawrence County Sheriff John Manning, arrived as the noisy crowd sought to drag the frightened woman off. She told the sheriff that she had seen her fella kill Dee Lee but when she tried to have him arrested, law officers paid her no mind. Now this fellow wanted to get back at her, and so did the mob. The sheriff placed the woman in protective custody. How long she remained in Deadwood Jail is unknown, as is her fate after the sheriff released her. She disappeared from the record. Likewise, papers didn't identify her fella. The Times made its final reference to the China Doll case in its January 25, 1880 edition. Deadwood authorities were investigating the opium dens in Chinatown. Certain Chinese men had been marked for death because he had been seen in the company of the Deadwood peace officer and was suspected of being a snitch. A judge assured Kung Sing 
that the law would protect him, but the newspaper suggested otherwise. When any of them, the Chinese, violates one of their laws, in a few days he is found most brutally murdered, as is in the case of the woman here in town, not less than two years ago, and the authorities were powerless to ever find the person who could be suspected. Not a Chinaman could be found that knew a thing about it. They were all as reticent as the grave. It is unlikely that anyone from the Deadwood Anglo community killed Dee Lee. Motives are lacking. She was not raped, and it is unclear whether she was robbed. Most likely a person or persons in Deadwood's Chinese community committed the murder. Perhaps that anonymous fella of the frightened young Chinese woman was involved. The murderers used a small knife and the blunt end of an axe. The axe is a weapon of choice of the Tongs, the Chinese secret societies that sometimes dealt with prostitution, gambling, and drugs. The use of two different weapons in the crime suggests two assailants. The one lone attacker could have used both weapons. It is possible that Chinese people who reported ghostly encounters knew more about the circumstances of the murder than they were willing to reveal to Deadwood authorities. The neighbor's ghost story had the victim pleading in Cantonese, something that was loosely translated as, do not kill me or do not hit me. If Dee Lee did let a man into her house in the middle of the night, she must have known him. Hong Lee came forth afterwards, claiming to be a relative of the late China doll. Could he have planned her murder and brought along an axe-wielding accomplice? Did he stand to gain from the property of his next of kin? The December 4th Black Hills Daily Times suggested that D. Lee was the slave of an unknown Asian in California, but it is doubtful that he had anything to do with the murder in Deadwood, if he even existed. In short, there are no definitive answers to this mystery. Barring the unlikely discovery of some revealing Chinese journals or letters, the murder of the China doll must remain an open case. Kitty Leroy and the Lone Star Saloon. Life was indeed cheap and brutal in territorial Deadwood, and those tragedies continued to create still more hauntings. A grim-faced bartender led a pair of sheriff's deputies up the stairs of Deadwood's Lone Star Saloon to the two lifeless bodies sprawled on the floor. One of the deceased individuals was a gambler named Kitty Leroy, and the other was her estranged husband, Sam Curley. The quiet expression on Kitty's face gave no indication that her death had been a violent one. She was lying on her back with her eyes closed, and if not for the bullet hole in her chest, would have simply had looked as though she were sleeping. Sam's dead form was a mass of blood and broken tissue. He was lying face first on the floor, with pieces of his skull protruded from the self-inflicted gunshot wound. In his right hand, he held the pistol that had brought about this tragic scene. For those townspeople who knew the flamboyant 28-year-old Kitty Leroy, her violent demise did not come as a surprise. She was a voluptuous beauty who used her remarkable good looks to take advantage of infatuated men who believed her charm and talent surpassed any they had known. But Kitty Leroy was not going to let a little thing like dying tragically end her fun. From the Black Hills Daily Times of Deadwood, January 16th of that same year, Haunted House. Disembodied spirits visit the scenes of past realities. Spirits of the good, the fair, and beautiful guard us through the dreamy hours. Kinder ones, but perhaps less dutiful, keep the places that once were ours. For some time past, Vague rumors have been in circulation concerning unnatural and unaccountable noises and apparitions in the Lone Star building on Lower Main Street near Chinatown. This house will be remembered by Deadwoodites as the recent scene of the murder of Kitty Leroy and the subsequent suicide of her murderer and husband, Sam R. Curley. These reports having become a subject of general conversations, a Times reporter visited the house, of which so many stories were afloat, and gleaned the following. The Lone Star Building gained its first notoriety from the suicide by poisoning of a woman of ill repute last spring. 
The house was subsequently rented by Hattie Donnelly, and for a time all went smoothly, with the exception of such little rows and disturbances as are incident to such places. About the 1st of December, the house was rented by Kitty Leroy, a woman said to be well-connected and possessed of intelligence far beyond her class. Kitty was a woman well-known to the reporter, and whatever might have been her life here, it is not necessary to display her virtues or vices, as we deal simply with information gleaned from hearsay and observation. With the above facts before the reader, we simply give the following, as it appeared to us, and leave the reader to draw their own conclusions as to the phenomena witnessed by ourselves and many others. It is an oft-repeated tale, but one which in this case is lent more than ordinary interest by the tragic events surrounding the actors. To tell our tale briefly and simply, is to repeat a story old and well-known, the reappearance in spirit form of departed humanity. In this case, it is the shadow of a woman, comely if not beautiful, and always following her footsteps, the tread and form of the man who was the cause of their double death. In the still watches of the night, the double phantoms are seen to tread the stairs where once they reclined in the flesh, and linger o'er places where once they reclined in loving embrace, and finally to melt away in the shadows of the night as peacefully as their body's souls seem to have done, when the fatal bullets brought death and the grave to each. Whatever may have been the vices and virtues of the ill-starred and ill-mated couple, we trust their spirits may find a happier camping ground than the hills and gulches of the Black Hills, and that though infelicity reigned with them here, happiness may blossom in a fairer clime. The Tragedy of a Haunted House. Our final story tonight is a ghost story unlike any other I have ever read in South Dakota. It takes place in the year 1900. Appropriately enough, it takes place in a ghost town. This story was reported in the Black Hills Union newspaper of Rapid City on August 17th, 1900. The town of Erling, South Dakota no longer exists. The only things left that mark its existence are a town, cemetery, and a handful of classified ads in the Argus Leader from the 1890s mentioning the town. And, of course, this story. It was located in Lyman County, less than half a mile north and about a mile west of present-day Kennebec. Kennebec is currently the Lyman County seat, but did not exist until five years after this story. According to a local historian and all-around helpful awesome guy, Lannis Went of Vivian, Erling's Lutheran Church was dedicated in 1891, generally assumed to be the oldest church in Lyman County for the settlers. This church sat at the southwest corner of the Erling Cemetery grounds, which to this day is still maintained by the Bank West employees of Kennebec, and is an active cemetery. It also housed the school for a time before the erection of a permanent school just west of the church. Our story begins. Thank you. 
Charles W. Kasmer is in jail here, charged with the murder of Frank W. Heppy, April 13th. His defense is that the crime was committed by a man already nearly five years in his grave. The residents of the neighborhood are so firmly convinced of something supernatural in the killing that it is doubtful if a jury can be found in the country to convict a prisoner who alleges such manifestations. In the summer of 1892, Heppy and Thomas Barber formed a partnership, bought a bunch of cattle, and engaged in business as ranchmen. Both were bachelors and lived in a sod house 11 miles north of this place. For two years they got on well together. Then a dispute arose concerning a division of profits. Heppy left the ranch and commenced a suit against his partner for an accounting. Before the case came to trial, a settlement was effected, the partnership was re-established, and the men resumed housekeeping together. About two months afterward, Heppy rode into town and gave himself up to the authorities with the explanation that Barber had assaulted him and that he had killed him out of self-defense. On visiting the house, the officers found Barber lying where he had fallen. He had evidently been sitting or standing in front of the rude fireplace and had been killed by a knife thrust between the shoulders. The fact that he was stabbed in the back gave the case an ugly look. Heppy's version was that Barber was reaching for a gun kept over the fireplace. As there was no witness to contradict this story, the prisoner was acquitted. Public opinion was so strongly against him, however, that he sold his interest in the ranch and left the country. While Heppy was in jail, the knife with which Barber was killed disappeared in a most mysterious manner. The night before the case was called, the prosecuting attorney saw the knife in his safe. He locked the safe and sat down for an evening's work. Before leaving, he reopened the safe and was astonished to discover that the knife had disappeared. He had not left his office during the evening, nor had anyone but himself entered it. Nothing else in the safe, which included a considerable sum of money, was disturbed. Soon after Heppy's departure, it began to be whispered that strange things were happening about the deserted cabin. Passing cattlemen said that groans, imprecations, and shrieks for aid were issued from the windows, and sometimes a figure was seen moving inside. The majority spurred by at top speed after dark. The boulder scoffed at the tails, but no one cared to investigate more closely. So far as it is known, the hut was never entered from the time Heppy left it until the night of April 13th. Heppy himself and Casmer were the first to revisit it. After spending nearly five years on the Texas cattle ranges, Heppy returned to the northwest and obtained employment on a ranch nearly 100 miles north of Earling. Winter storms drifted many head of his employer's cattle to the southward, and Heppy and Casmer, a fellow herdsman, were detailed to round them up. On the 2nd, they entered Presno County. Toward the evening, a snowstorm set in. Both men were exhausted and blinded by snow. Casmer suggested riding to Earling for shelter. On the way, Heppy led him, either by accident or design, toward his old sod house. Heppy proposed stopping there for the night. The house was in a very dilapidated condition, but the cowboys built a fire on the hearth, produced their provisions and a flask of whiskey, and were soon comfortable. It was late when they arrived, and when, after partaking of their impromptu luncheon, Heppy seated himself on a stump in front of the fire, on nearly the same spot where Barber had been stabbed five years before. Casmer thinks it was between 12 and 1 o'clock. Casmer says he had stepped to the door to see whether there were any signs of a cessation of the storm, when he was startled by a yell of agony from his companion. Rushing inside, he found the latter lying on his face in front of the fire, his forehead actually in the embers, and a knife sticking in his back. Afraid to stay in the house longer, he mounted his bronco and started for Earling. He was unfamiliar with the country, and soon became hopelessly lost. Such was the story he told when found early the next morning, wandering aimlessly over the prairie. His rescuers accompanied him to the cabin. Heppy was still on the floor with a knife sticking between his shoulder blades. On drawing it out, the spectators were horrified to discover it was the same weapon which had so mysteriously disappeared from the Presno County Prosecuting Attorney's safe. Casmer was brought into town and locked up. Now he might have pleaded self-defense with at least as good a chance of acquittal as Heppy. He insists that the latter was killed by an invisible assailant. The knife has been fully identified as the same that with which Barber was slain. Public opinion is strongly with the prisoner. So what happened next? Well, we don't know. The records are lost. 
Sometime around 1930, a tornado scattered the original Erling Church, resulting in the loss of nearly all the church records, including birth, death, and marriage certificates. The Church of Erling was used sparingly at that time, and the congregation had gradually been absorbed into the Kennebec Lutheran congregation. All of the locals that I've talked to about this story seem to have no idea that this story took place or have ever heard of it. This newspaper clipping is literally the only record we have left of the event. To be honest, ever since I found it, I myself have been mentally haunted by this story and its implications and the fact that it isn't more widely known. So that story is pretty amazing, and I literally can't find any locals who had any idea this story had taken place. Uh, Lanus did a whole bunch of groundwork for me out there in Kennebec with a lot of the old-timers who are still around, and we could find no record of this story or anyone living that uh, remembered any aspect of it, which the story seems pretty spectacular. It makes me wonder what other, like, fantastic stories are still out there in South Dakota to be discovered. And just to let you know, this podcast is going to keep looking for those stories. I hope that you'll stick with us and, uh, and we'll find more of these amazing tales to tell you, stories that have never been heard in the Sioux Empire. More after this break. So this month we have a little bit of listener mail. After our previous episode about KKK violence and activity in South Dakota, I asked listeners on social media if they had family stories about these events. Listener Bruce D. writes, Just thought I'd mention the KKK in the 1920s burned crosses on Spirit Mound north of Vermilion. My grandparents' farm could see the glow in the night, as it was meant to scare the local Irish Catholics and immigrants. This was during the heyday of the nationwide rebirth of the clan after the movie Birth of a Nation. Thank you for your message, Bruce. And if you have any kind of messages or personal anecdotes or anything about all the topics that we talk about that you'd like read on the podcast, all you have to do is submit those. You can send those to info at com or hit me up on social media. Uh, that's always cool. I really hope that you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you want to do your own research and dig deeper into the sources that we used in this episode, the full work cited for each episode is available to Patreon supporters of the show. Your donations help me access more books, more research databases, and other important resources that I couldn't access otherwise, and it helps this show keep going. Donations are accepted through Venmo, Patreon, and now through the Anchor page for this podcast. If you like the show, but you don't want to donate anything, that's totally cool. Not everyone can do that. You'd be doing me a huge favor if at the very least you went out and told someone about this podcast. Uh, just tell a friend about if you found it interesting, if you found it entertaining, if you learned some things you've never learned before, and uh, be sure to share it on social media. Th those are all free ways that uh, you could support this podcast that really mean a lot to me. And I just want to say thank you to everyone out there that actively promotes this show and helps it keep going. Finally, a very special thank you to my uh, voice actors for this episode. So I pooled the talent from my previous audio drama production edge case podcast which by the way is still out there and with this being october you should totally check out this uh, horror sci-fi anthology audio drama series it's edge case podcast and uh, there's a link to it on the sue empire podcast page that's the sue empire podcast.com anyway we used a ton almost 30 different extremely talented voice actors in the production of that show and tonight, I just want to thank the voice actors who stepped up and read parts of these stories for me and gave us uh, really, really awesome dramatic readings. I couldn't be more prouder of the work they did. And I just want to say a huge thank thanks to, first, Levi Hansen for uh, reading the uh, Sichi Hollow portion. That's Levi Hansen. His hip-hop rap name is uh, Gorilla Pimp, and you can check out all of his social media. Be sure to follow uh, subscribe to his music and follow uh, his social media. He was also one of the uh, original co-hosts of one of my previous podcasts, the Urban Indians podcast. So Levi's an awesome guy. Thank you for doing that reading, Levi. Next, Brett Stoles read the uh, D. Lee portion. Brett is an awesome voice actor that we utilized a lot in uh, Edge Case podcast and 
I just want to say uh, thank you very much, Brett, for doing that. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our audience really appreciates that too. And then for the Kitty Leroy part, uh, that was read by Malia Lakomsky, which I am finally getting her last name right. Yay. Uh, she was an intern for the Sioux Empire podcast and for Edge Case podcast over last summer, 2019 summer. And she did a lot of production work and music editing and things like that for that Edge Case podcast that I previously mentioned. She did the voice part for the Kitty Leroy portion of this episode. And just a huge thank you, Malia, for for your participation in this. You did fantastic work. Uh, just thank you so much. And then finally, last but not least, I really want to thank Adam Wells for doing a fantastic job on his reading of uh, my mystery newspaper clipping I found, Erling Ghost Story, that we talked about at the end of the episode here. Uh, thank you so much for doing that, sir. Did a fantastic job, and I'm sure that uh, our audience really appreciates that dramatic reading. Thank you. And so once again, I just want to express my love and gratitude to everyone for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next month. <laughs>